welcome. Welcome to Conversations in Compassion, a podcast by Dignity Maine, a program of Agape Inc., and made possible by Coffee by Design Rebel Blend Fund. This is a different kind of podcast. Instead of interviews, we have conversations. This is my effort to demonstrate the examples of what I call compassionate conversation. Through these conversations, I hope to address the discord in our families, in our communities, and in ourselves, to focus on the greatest need of our time, the need for compassion. So thank you. Thank you for doing this with me, Doreen. Um, What I'm aware of is that for many years now, you've been personally and professionally thinking about eating disorders and people's healthy eating. And um, I'd love to hear your present thoughts about that. Well, thank you for having me. It's really an honor to be here um, and talk with you about this important issue. Um, yeah, it's having had some experience um, in, you know, as a, well, just as a woman in general <laughs> in the world and um, and all the sort of violence of our culture that says, you know, unless you look a certain way, um, which is an impossible way to look, um, you know, then you should be spending your time and energy changing the way you look. Um, and, you know, that it's, it's so, you know, it's subtle and it's woven in our culture. Um, but I think I read something like 40% of first to third grade girls want to be thinner mm. and 80% of 10 year olds are afraid of being fat. Mm. So they're not missing it. It's not that subtle. Mm. Um, and it's in our language and it's in how we organize things and it's in our health policy, you know, that weight loss is health. Mm. So you, you're, um, you can feel how those messages as a woman has sort of impacted your life. Uh, and you now are kind of like trying to figure out how to impact other people's lives with this. Yeah, there's this, you know, in thinking about sort of like eating disorders have, you know, other than um, people who are are struggling with opiate use, um, which was just recently surpassed the death rate of eating disorders. Um, you know, they're pretty dangerous. <laughs> and mm-hmm. 80% of the people who have them are women. It's even a little bit higher than that in some journals. And yet, the and the treatment is just so... It's kind of like, well, we'll try this, <laughs> or maybe we'll try that. And outcomes are so dismal, um, and they have been for years. And that it, all of that, I mean, it occurs to me, is all downstream. Like, we're just, you know, like picking people out of the water, <laughs> right, and trying to apply some kind of treatment. Um, but 
what's happening upstream where, you know, weight stigma and, you know, people just not be, you know, people from an early age, from the first grade girls being told that their bodies don't belong in our culture so that they should spend their lives trying to change them. That's what's pushing them in the water in the first place. (laughs) And I think we're a little misguided um, sometimes when we make it a personal responsibility. There's this, um, for for you, you can see that the shaping of a young woman's life is coming from these messages. And they come really clearly at the body and the size and what happens to you. it's like almost unsafe to live in a culture where you don't measure up to a particular body size. Mm. Yeah, I mean, until you're, I think about my own childhood, you know, as a little girl, I had a big brother and, you know, I did everything that he did and I was just, it was so fun and exciting and then all of a sudden puberty hits and and you have this visual disadvantage of being a woman suddenly and that you know and not to minimize what it's like to be a person of color but it's also a visual it's like our society if you have some visual sort of disadvantage being female you know having a um, some kind of visible disability the culture just throws throws oppression at you like it's their job (laughs) You, t- you, you spoke just a moment about this moment in your own life where mm. you moved from, you know, just being a child with your brother and doing everything and then all of a sudden shifting, almost like a shift. Can you say more about that? Yeah. Um, it's It's about belonging. And, you know, when you're little kids, you kind of just, everybody gets along and until you start sort of, looking different or you know you're now that you're a young girl you're supposed to wear a dress or you're supposed to look a certain way and I wanted to play little league and I did I was on the boys team I was pretty good (laughs) Um, and I just noticed that I wasn't really belonging in either you know place I wasn't I tried ballet and I tried all those things (laughs) I hated looking in that big mirror and seeing what a clod I was compared to all the you know really graceful ballerinas but i was a really good catcher (laughs) um and just yeah the the and then it sort of you know carries through to then you go to you know for my in my own life then we moved right in fifth grade we'll talk about not belonging when you move into a new classroom of right and of girls and you're not really like them um yeah, there was there was a lot of that sort of. I just I just so I went to sports and that was sort of how I found a place to belong. Um, it's being the it's being the catcher, hmm. you know. At first, it's uh, being part of the little league and sort of um, gender where you're allowed to be with the boys, and then all of a sudden it starts to move to a female team, mm-hmm. and then it you can notice and feel the shift. Uh, of the expectation again around your body and your body image and yeah yeah it was really strong for sure then um and you know i mentioned earlier like it's really it's kind of subtle and it really it really was pretty subtle um but then you sort of 
I don't know, not everybody experiences sort of the, like that they need to go on a diet, right? But suddenly somebody, you get the idea that if you go on a diet and you can be a little bit smaller, you know, that everything's going to be okay. People are going to like you. Um, and that's a, that's a way to sort of have some identity. So, so there's a correlation between uh, this idea of getting thinner and affirmation and being liked. Yeah. And belonging. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I've sort of muddled through that. Like, you know, you uh, it was, you get to a point where, you know, you go to college and you start focusing on other things and, you know, marriage and kids and, um, you know, you can, you sort of focus on outwardly on, you know, family and, um, but then there's all that, like, it's like middle school all over again, because then you try to join the book club and the women don't want you because they only allow 10 and they have 10, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or something silly like that. But, um, and you just constantly get those, you know, those messages that you're just, you're not smart enough or you're not, you know, you're just one too short of 10 or <laughs> whatever. Um, and so, you, you know, for, I know for me personally, then I just started to, I just, Okay, well, I I became, you know, I ran 10 miles in the morning and then I would run 5 miles in the afternoon, partly because I was bored, but also because I realized that that was my identity. Like I got praise from the universe because what willpower you have, you know, what uh discipline you have. Discipline you have. Yeah. And you and and you're running you know, 15 miles, but you're doing 10 in the morning and 10 in the afternoon, I mean, five in the afternoon or more, and you're pursuing this, and then there's something else that's magic, which is that I'm also managing my body and my body image. Mm-hmm. Now I'll belong. And now I'll belong. Now they'll accept me. Because it was this critical thought that I don't belong and I'm not acceptable. And the best way through this is for me to do something about my body. That as a woman, that was the way towards acceptability mm-hmm. and belonging. Yeah. And that deep yearning to just be a part of. Yeah, and the part that, you know, and the part about eating disorders is that if you, there's there's a genetic component, there's a biological component, right? There's a social component, so eventually, for me, um, you know, biologically, it started to control me, and I was compelled. Running was a compulsion. Exercise was a compulsion. Um, and then I started, you know, I left my marriage not in a very graceful way um, of 20 years, and the shame from that sort of literally physically removed me from my environment Mm. which was mom and two kids and nuclear family to you know moved back to a town where we lived before we all moved away together you know alone Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the shame of that really just that's when my eating disorder really took over and just because i for me not eating and running 10 miles a day calmed the anxiety it made me feel better um, it was a coping mechanism and it wasn't about what I looked like at that point anymore. It was just, it controlled me. It, the shame created this anxiety and then you had already 
picked up a way to cut through the anxiety, which was compulsive exercise. Mm-hmm. And then the shame went up because of the loss of relationship. And you know, all of a sudden, you found yourself compulsively having to exercise over and over and over. And it worked. It did. It cut through the shame and the anxiety. What was the consequence? Well, you know me, I'm kind of an overachiever. <laughs> um, so I um, also somehow in along the way decided that um, alcohol would also help in the process so that I could, you know, I could get up and run 10 miles in the morning. Um, but, you know, by noontime or one o'clock, you know, there's a sort of a myth out there that if you have um, anorexia, that you're not hungry. And that is total BS because you are hungry all the time, always thinking about food constantly. And so little booze in the water bottle, you know, on the way to the, to the gym, you know, with on the treadmill <laughs> would help, you know, calm that so I wouldn't have to eat and it would calm. All, so you had sort of the, the demons about, you know, the shame and the hunger. And so the booze took care of both of those things until, you know, nighttime when I had to be a mom because my, my daughter was coming home from practice and I had to be, you know, alert and awake. And um, the consequence was that I almost, uh, I almost lost my life more mm. than once. Mm. Um, and I almost lost her. And that, that was the thing that turned it around for me. <clears throat> so, you know, you when you end up in the hospital because you've taken all of your medication in one night and washed it down with, you know, classy boxed wine, <laughs> um, <laughs> you get a visit, you know, because she was upstairs and, and she was 16 at the time. Um, and, but, and my, you know, my friends came and cause I had, I guess I had texted somebody and they came and, um, t- stayed with her and I went and so you get a visit from the department. <laughs> they want to know what happened and, you know, why this would happen in front of your child. And that was the moment for me that I knew that my shame was going to kill me and I was going to lose everything that was important to me if I didn't do something. This this anxiety, this shame that you talk about was so powerful in your life. And it it sort of started slowly as a young woman, not feeling like you belong. And it just sort of takes takes up space in, in your mind and catches speed and gets bigger and bigger and fatter and fatter. And then all of a sudden you're almost dead mm. a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And... Every bit of your life was around trying to manage that shame, trying to manage the anxiety that was coming from, I'm not good enough. I don't belong. I don't matter. Yeah. And that something outside of you, a 16-year-old daughter, 
mattered mattered more than uh, mattered more than me yeah more than anything mm-hmm. and that sort of shook you it did yeah and you always say um we're injured by the crowd and we can be healed by the crowd and that was the light that really saved my life mm. i had a therapist um after i came out of treatment <clears throat> who recommended AA for me. And I was like, I'm not an alcoholic. I mean, yeah, I, I've abused alcohol, but, you know, it was to, so I didn't have to eat. You know? mm-hmm. So for like months, I was like, no, that's not for me. Mm-hmm. People will know me. I mean, talk about shame. Mm-hmm. I live in a small town. I can't go. I'm a, I'm a social worker. <laughs> There'll be people there who I work with who know me. Um, and I don't know, one day, I reached out to a friend who I knew went um, into the community meeting um, and he is a, you know, he's a in the field and I was like, well, he's gotten over whatever shame he might have and he goes, so maybe it's not so bad. And he met me at the door. He said he'd meet me there and he walked me in and what I never got from treatment and a you know partial hospitalization program god love them <laughs> um or a therapist one on one i got from this group of people who did not care if i was on an awkward ballerina they didn't care that i was a good catcher <laughs> they didn't care if i ran 10 miles a day they loved me the second i walked through that door and I'd never felt that in my life from a group of people ever. Mm. And they kept telling me that I should keep coming back. And I was <laughs> like, well, okay, <laughs> I'm going to keep coming back. Because um, so. fundamentally, you, you've talked about it all the way along that, you know, as, as a child and as an adolescent, as an adult, you know, you just wanted to belong. Mm. And so you get to this room. And there's a small group of people in a town where you thought for sure you'd feel ashamed. Instead, you felt welcomed. Yeah. No matter what. <laughs> no matter what your story was. And that, that, that it was almost like a, something had happened that you'd never, ever expected. Yeah. And there was a, an, an older gentleman there who I really looked up to. He was a professor. Um, and he traveled all around. And he... One day he said to me, um, I, it was after a particularly rough patch, and he just looked at me and he said, you're going to help a lot of people someday. And I like that lit me on fire. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, you know, my life up until then had been really just kind of being a mom and I had my degree, but it was, you know, 100 years ago. And, and I was like, well, what if that's true? Like, what if I can go back to school someday and, you know, get my master's and um share what i know is helpful for recovery and so i did i just have completely immersed myself in it and which has brought me in your path which i'm grateful for mm, thank you <laughs> yeah that's you you could hear again these these people arrive you know who whether it's the person at the door that you knew was a social worker you met you at the door and walked you in with this older professor that said, someday you're going to be 
there for others and helpful to them. You can feel the touch, uh, almost like a touch of the heart. They saw me. Yeah. They saw what I wanted. They saw who I was. And all the messages you talked about, uh, girls and people getting about food and you know, it's not about you matter. It's about you matter if. If yes. <laughs> as long as as long as you look like this. Mm, mm. Yeah. And you have then dedicated now yourself to finishing up your masters and kind of moving on and thinking about how do I help um, deal with this illness in our culture, this uh, social phenomenon that uh, really attacks women. Yeah. So I heard somewhere once that, like, um, well, I'll just say, <laughs> the it's... It's more, for me, it's about, I don't know if it's about healing the illness. The more I think about it, it's about healing the sadness and the anxiety and the feeling of not belonging. And I didn't get any of that in treatment. I mean, I got a food plan and, you know, the like how much I should run or not run every day. But I got sent home, you know, to my house, which was empty other than my you know my daughter who's got her social life as she should <clears throat> and none of that changed for me so you 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 noticed that when you walked into the systems that was there to help you that their focus on the illness the focus on the problem mm wasn't really helpful. I was still alone. I still didn't feel like I belonged. I still didn't have a fellowship. I didn't have support. Yeah. <clears throat> I had a focus on illness. Yeah. I mean, and it was helpful because I did ultimately heal, but there's that part of like, and this is why I have nine more weeks until graduation. <laughs> um, and I'm just like, I just... I know that if somebody gets in there with, you know, my, for example, my mom, she's been my biggest cheerleader, you know, my entire life. She's the one who sat through field hockey games in the rain. <laughs> She'd be the only one there. <laughs> she, no matter what I've done in my life, she's always been there to cheer me on. And she was sitting there not having any idea how to help me and so desperately wanting to be able to help me and really got from the, you know, the professionals that she just needed to back away, mm. which was just the absolute wrong message. And, you know, thankfully she didn't because she's my mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so that really, and my, um, my partner at the time, who's now my husband, also had the same, you know, response that you know, he sort of asked a question like, how, how can I, be helpful like I don't know what to do um and actually asked that question during a you know there's like a big you have to all come with your families to this big circle and report on all the things you did wrong on the weekend um and he said something he asked a question and the person who was running the group that day 
chastised him for using the wrong language. And, you know, you know and I was looking around the room very much in my illness thinking, ha, <laughs> like, you're like, great, because now I don't have to change anything. Uh, but I remember the looks on the faces of all of the partners and parents and loved ones and just how desperate they looked for help us know what to do. So it's, you know, and after years of all the strain of you need to eat, I don't want to eat. Why can't you just eat? And like all of that stuff that happens in families, um, they don't mean to, but it piles on to you're doing it wrong. This is all your fault. <laughs> can't you just eat? Um, and I think and believe strongly in my heart that what they need, what a person who's experiencing an eating disorder really truly needs is a community of people who know how to be compassionate with them. And that's what's really missing. And I got that, thankfully, in my AA group that I went to. They didn't even know it. <laughs> um, but and it didn't even really matter that you didn't have the same problem in the mind. You just had a compulsive, shame-based mind so you could identify with them and you started to feel like you belonged, but you noticed that your mom and your partner at the time who became your husband, they didn't have it. Mm-mm. They were actually being chastised for, um, somehow they were wrong. Somehow the way they approached you was wrong and you could feel it in their eyes. You could see it. And what I know about you is that that's that moment where they were chastised, where your mother was feeling incompetent and mm. unable to figure out what to do or your partner or other people that loved you didn't know what to do. And the only message they had was, you're, you're part of the problem. Yeah, you're to blame. You're to blame, mm-hmm. which is a, a form of violence in itself. Yeah. And, and, and your work has been about, like, how do I help the caregiver? Mm. How do I help those who care deeply for the people who are suffering from that felt sense of not belonging? You know, and that and that felt sense of not belonging means that you turn it into some kind of compulsive behavior that starts to hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. That you start to injure the soul. Yeah, it works until it doesn't. Well, until you're almost dead or you have died. You know, that you're laying on the floor or the Department of Health and Human Services at your door Hmm. asking you, why are you an incompetent mom? Yeah. Yeah, it makes me... uh, (laughs) Something else that was really instrumental in my recovery... Um, was at one point everybody in my life, except my mom, <laughs> left me, including my now husband. But at that point, everybody had walked out of my life. And um, I got myself a dog. <laughs> <laughs> and I walked into the shelter and I asked for an old dog um, that nobody would adopt. Hmm. And I walked out with... A seven-year-old um, pit bull, <laughs> mm-hmm. 
you know, who was shaved because he had scars, surgery, and and that dog saved my life. Like, that mm. dog didn't care when I walked through the door. He understood unconditional love, mm. radical acceptance. I could walk through the door and have skipped breakfast, lunch, and dinner and felt as bad about myself as I possibly could about how I was handling recovery. And he would just stand there and big, dumb smile on his face <laughs> and just be happy to see me. And, and he loved me anyway. Mm. And You could feel it in his eyes. You could see his yeah. body wobbling, you know, that he was glad you were here. Yeah. You could feel that sort of connectedness mm-hmm. uh, to this to this animal. I'm I'm curious about a moment like somehow you knew that somehow you knew that I need to have empathy for something. Mm. Everybody is taken off because I'm basically not doing what I'm supposed to do. Mm -hmm. I'm filled with shame. I've figured out ways to, Encourage them to go. Yep. <laughs> and then there's another part of you that's willing to walk into a shelter and say, give me, <laughs> let me take home the dog that nobody else wants so that I can have empathy. And he can have empathy. She can have empathy for me. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the story. He, uh, he, he only lived in a year and a half after that, and he literally died two weeks before my one year. Um, I was also, I also, I did um, decide that I needed to be sober because at that point I didn't know if I was an alcoholic because I was certainly acting like one. So I was two weeks away from my one year sobriety and recovery, no eating disorder behaviors at all date. He died two weeks before that. Um, but he, he had a, his cancer had come back and I remember thinking, how am I ever like two weeks? Like really diesel? <laughs> how could you? And, uh, and I really, I realized that it was almost like he decided that mm-hmm. I'm good now. You're okay. Like you've got it. My job is done here. <laughs> um, and I felt the same about him. Like he just needed someone to love him. You know, he hated the shelter so much. Mm. <laughs> I I never cried harder. I don't think for any human I've lost in my life. <laughs> <laughs> that connection was just, you know, it was really special. I could I could feel the tears, you know, the the sorrow mm. of saying goodbye to him, and then a whisper, almost another whisper, that said, "You trust me now. Mm-hmm. You trust me to be able to take it from here." Yeah. And that and it was okay at that point to kind of let go of each other. At that moment. Yeah, and I have never looked back. I haven't had any I've been recovered ever since. <laughs> right. right. And you could feel that it somehow it was again about this this empathy. It, mm-hmm. This moment that you decided to walk in, do you you have any sense of that moment? Because that's a, I mean, that, there's a whisper there that says, I am not doing so great with humans, <laughs> <laughs> but I, and I need something. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was, uh, it's exactly that. I, um, and I, I was mindful enough that I knew I needed an old dog who couldn't go running with me, (laughs) 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 who would help me stay put. Um, but, uh, you know, I sort of shared my, uh, like I said, my partner at the time, Mm. um, Mm. uh, his, the dog was at my house all the time and, and I just noticed how much I missed that, you know, that unconditional love. And I don't know, I guess I had some sense that I wasn't getting that from anywhere else. And if I didn't find it, I was going to die. And that, that's the beauty of, of what you knew, mm-hmm. that, that somehow, not love for yourself, which is a focus, it was love for your daughter that got you off the floor. Yep. It was the love of a dog that got you to be consistent. Mm-hmm. It was knowing somehow in the soul of my being that I need to love well. Not be self-loving, mm. not be self-compassionate, but but be able to do it for someone else. Yeah. It was going to get me out of this shame, out of this anxiety, out of this torturous thoughts that you were having. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely conscious with my daughter. I don't know if that was conscious about the dog. <laughs> but I think that that was a, um, I think I learned that that uh, I had to sort of get over myself <laughs> and yeah, just, you know, I, it's, it's kind of innate when you're a mom, it, like that love for you do anything for your, your kids. And when you realize that you've hurt them, um, you know, it, it makes change a lot easier. Is this um, piece that you're sort of illuminating it is so, so beautiful about, you know, when you love well, mm. there's some way you can pierce through all the shame, all the struggle that lives in your thoughts. Yeah. And in your body. And you seem to find health when that's the focus. And when the focus is on you and your problems mm-hmm. and your lack of connection or your not belonging, not, 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> you stay there. You sure do. And it gets progressive. And you go deeper. Yeah. Yeah. And Into deeper. It. Yeah. <laughs> Until the point where it's a, it, it, there's a question of life and death: Am I going to love, or am I going to be in the despair? Yeah. And you um, found a way out. Now there's a couple of things that kind of gave you that message, which was first that your mom never gave up. She sat there in the cold <laughs> in a field hockey game, mm-hmm. being the only mom, mm-hmm. shivering. And you kind of knew that she was never going to give up. Yeah. And then also that feeling, that, that felt sense when you walked through the 
door of that first AA meeting. That like, ah. Oh. I was just like that. Like relief. Relief. Yeah. I found it. Mm-hmm. I belong. Even though the struggle uh, didn't end there. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, it kept going. But you knew something was a little different. Uh, Almost like there's two sides now. There's the one that is caught up in the shame and the anxiety. And there's another one that's caught up in that relief of belonging. Yeah, and it's, like you said, it's, you know, at first it was definitely that relief, like, but then it was like, I have to, you know, it's seven o'clock, it's late and it's cold. I don't really want to go, but I need to show up for that person who's going to walk through the door <laughs> because that's, that was what would propel me, you know, at, after, you know, after a little while, you sort of start to figure it out. Just like you're saying, you sort of get, you understand that. It's- there's a remarkable thing. I, I, you don't know how to, I don't know what the human species wants to do with this, but if, if by chance it's self-focused mm-hmm. and, it, and it stays focused on like, this is my illness, this is my problem, this is my issue, and it doesn't make this shift. Like, I'm going to go to that 7 o'clock meeting, not for me anymore. Mm-hmm. But for the other people in the room, if you can make the shift from the I-ism to the we, mm. there's something incredibly powerful about that. You, you shifted from I'm alone and isolated and in the midst of this struggle, mm-hmm. this suffering, and I'm going to walk over to the shelter because I want a we. <laughs> yes. You know, there's something about making that shift. Mm-hmm. And that's really what your life's work is now. Yeah. Help the we in the category, the, the, the people on the edge, the people that are with, witnessing the struggle, the suffering. Yeah. Because it, even small bites of compassion in the storm are the pieces you remember. Yeah. I remember the professor saying, you're going to help a lot of people someday. That was that was that was the night after I showed up with a little booze on my breath mm-hmm. <laughs> to the meeting. Um, I mean, you know, I didn't deserve any of that compassion in my mind, and yeah, that's exactly it. Mm. And I, I want to give that to the people who are experiencing eating disorders, and we all get there for different reasons. Um, but I think underneath it. When you're in the soup, um, you know, being able to experience the compassion of somebody else and, you know, diesel waiting for you at the door (laughs) and loving you anyway, even if you fail, and just walking with you while you do it, I think everybody deserves that. And their caregivers, you know, deserve to understand how to do that and give that to their loved ones. Um, And then the the experience, like you're sort of explaining, sort of that they get from giving compassion and being able to be empathic 
hopefully is contagious. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a remarkable. It's about loving well. Mm-hmm. It's it's not about I need to be loved well. You know, there's a if I do it, then I start to experience it. If I waiting for it, I can stay in my suffering. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. <laughs> <laughs> if we had a moment and you wanted to just say something that, to people who might be listening, what would you want to say to close this? Um, I guess I would say, you know, whether you're... Uh, if you're whether you're experiencing eating an eating disorder or you have somebody in your life who is or not um if you have a chance to be compassionate with somebody or or to do nothing at all i hope that you'll always choose compassion thank you for listening to today's conversation i truly hope you enjoyed it if you like what you hear please consider subscribing to apple podcasts spotify or wherever else you find your podcasts I'd like to give a heartfelt thanks to Coffee by Design and their Rebel Fund for their support to help make this podcast possible. Thank you again for being here. Take care.